Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 373 with my guest, Michael Kanan. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Squarespace. If you're not familiar with Squarespace, it is a great tool for building your own website, whether you want to publish a blog or any kind of content, any kind of product you want to sell. They got beautiful templates from world-class designers. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. I use it. It's awesome. Check it out. Go to uh, squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Uh, I am Paul Gilmartin, and uh, don't argue with me about that because I have the birth certificate to prove it. So dumb. Oh, This is my podcast, and don't even think about taking this from me. Because uh, if you do, you want to. If you want to come from my podcast, you are gonna have to pry it out of my cold dead microphone stand. Um, we have a great episode for you uh, today. It was so nice to reconnect with Michael, um, who's a support group friend of mine and uh, and a funny guy. And uh, yeah, and we got some really interesting surveys too. And the first one I want to read. Um, is this is an, an off, from the Awfulsome Moment uh, survey, and this is just, uh, I just love this one. And this is, I actually think this could be a happy moment, but um, I, I can see why she would fill it out under the uh, Awfulsome Moment um, survey. Uh, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, Evening Storm, and uh, she writes, uh, several months ago, I was trying out a new therapist after a long break. The only way to get to appointments was by taking a bus to another city, staying overnight with my grandma, and walking a mile or so there and back from her house. My new counselor was not a good fit, and I left each session in a severely triggered state, but still with no idea what was happening to me. 
I'd then be left on my own in a suburban neighborhood with nowhere to hide, feeling like my mind was going to implode and I might just start screaming and never stop. I would end up wandering up and down the streets for ages, trying to calm down enough to venture back onto the busy main road and walk back to my grandma's. A few sessions in, and I knew for sure this wasn't working. I left feeling more triggered than ever, though I still don't know what to call it. I started wandering the streets as usual, but I felt really out of control and desperate to find some privacy. It was October, and I wasn't really dressed warmly enough, so I had to keep walking. I ended up taking a new direction and came across a small kid's playground. I had no other option, so I climbed the fence and headed in, only to find with horror that this seemingly empty playground contained a bunch of teens hanging out and generally making merry. I was, I was really about to fucking lose it, and they hadn't seen me yet, so I had no choice but to dodge into some bushes and hide. I stood there in the scrubby patch of bushes for about 20 minutes, shaking and sobbing and shivering with cold, desperately hoping not to be noticed by people walking on the busy street nearby. Just then, a middle-aged man appeared out of nowhere and sat down on a bench right next to the bushes to eat his lunch. I froze. I was in such a state I knew I couldn't contain myself for more than a few minutes. But I was surrounded on all sides. What to do? Holding down hysterics, I scanned my surroundings and locked on to the only escape route. On the far side of the park was a large fence, through which I could see what looked like an empty field. I had no choice but to pull myself together with my last remaining scrap of strength and simply uh, emerge from the bushes into plain sight of the group of teenagers and the man on the bench right next to me, keeping my eyes fixed forward and hoping the cold wind would calm my tear-stained face. I marched straight across the park with as much dignity as I could muster, inelegantly climbed the fence and kept walking. In the UK, we have these large grassy areas called commons, which are publicly owned so anyone can walk there, but you might also find animals grazing, and this is what I found on the other side of the fence. As soon as I was out of earshot, the sobs burst forth again, but I walked and walked and let the wind whip away my tears. In a small, ridiculous part of my mind, I suddenly felt like an Austin heroine striding across the moors and I laughed at myself for this, between sobs. Here and there were herds of cows grazing, and I found myself comforted a little bit by their gentle presence. Eventually, I reached a path which led back into the city and stopped to rest on the single bench which stood in the middle of this huge, empty field. I was over the worst of it by then, but still crying and uncomfortably cold, wondering how long it would take to calm my swollen eyes enough to brave the walk back to my grandma's place. I had noticed a nearby group of cows moving closer to where I sat, and I could swear one cow in particular kept looking at me. I saw it sort of inching closer to me, grazing in one spot for a few seconds, glancing up at me, then immediately moving closer. Pretty soon, it had completely separated from the herd and was clearly making its way towards me. I couldn't help but watch its strange behavior while I tried to calm my breathing and we seemed to make eye contact a few times. A cyclist came by, and I immediately became engrossed in searching for something in my bag with my head down until he was gone. When I looked back up, I was amazed to see the cow 
walk all the way across the road and right up to me, settling to, quote, graze a spot of grass right by where I was sitting. I felt suddenly so full of warmth and gratitude, realizing that this creature may actually have been trying to comfort me. I might even be inclined to say that when I caught its eye again, it had a look of genuine compassion. We stayed there together for quite some time until I finally felt ready to set off home. When I stood up, the cow wandered back to the herd, seeing its job was done. So there you have it. A cow helped me more than my therapist that day. I'm glad to say I never went back there and have since found someone much better and I'm making genuine progress on the road to recovery, but I'll never forget that strange and wonderful encounter. I can't even thank you enough uh, for for that. Um, not only a beautiful story, but beautifully, beautifully written. Thank, thank you. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself C-Cub, uh, and describing his depression, he writes, The hollow feeling on my chest makes me feel that if I were to fall, I would shatter into a million pieces. Man, I know that feeling. That It almost feels like somebody has scooped your chest out. Um, about his anxiety, he writes, Feeling stressed and scared if at any moment I feel I'm not doing enough to be a good person. Oh my God, did I relate to that one? The mantra that the sick part of my brain likes to repeat is that I am too lazy to keep doom at bay and it's right outside the door. And so you better keep playing your video game because that's the only thing that's going to save you. My right wrist actually hurts from playing this new video game I have. Well, also from playing a lot of guitar. Um, but yeah, a little ashamed of that, but I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not in a shame spiral about it, but it's a little embarrassing. Um, this is filled out by a, uh, gender fluid, uh, person who calls themselves Avatar Uncanon. And about their anxiety, they write, I wake throughout the night certain a stranger is standing over me. I check and recheck my windows, fearing someone will climb into my home and steal my laptop. I don't know why this scares me more than anything. Not that they will rape or murder me, but that they may take a meaningless possession from me. I got to assume then it's a PC. <laughs> that was such a That was such a snobby, liberal comment to make. Um, oh man, that feeling of impending doom. And then about living with an abuser, they write, my mother reminds me of a knockoff Gucci bag. She presents such a marvelous mask to the world, but when you look closely, the monogram of her narcissism never lines up. Thank you for that. Uh, this is a happy moment, a very brief one filled out by a woman who calls herself Anorexic Ange. And she writes, after I had a shitty week at work, my son, who works at a cookie place, made me a big cookie that said, sorry, work blows. <laughs> it was amazing that he thought enough to make that and surprised me with it. I love it. I love it. In fact, when you quit the job, you should have him make you an I quit cookie. <laughs> we should use cookies to, to actually have any conversation that's difficult. What's the matter with sending somebody a sorry about the crabs cookie? Isn't that better than a text? 
Uh, this is a uh, memorable vacation argument, and um, that's the name of the survey. We don't get these too often, but um, this this person writes, uh, her name is Brooke. During one of the darkest times of my eating disorder, my father suggesting that I would need a medium life jacket instead of the small uh, forced a frown upon my face and even tears during the preceding jet ski adventure. Yes, I was crying while driving a jet ski. Oh, what what an image that is. And what a terrific guy your dad sounds like. Oh my God, that is... That's a nice thing about crying in a pool or a body of water, though. You can hide it. You can hide it a little bit. Little bit easier, um, man. Hey, uh, I've mentioned before that this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.com. Um, I'm a huge fan of it. I've been using them for a year, and I make all kinds of insights and and progress in certain areas with uh, my therapist Donna. And, uh, yeah, we talk for, uh, 45 minutes or an hour every week, um, through video and, uh, I love it. I love it. I feel super comfortable with her. I can be myself and, uh, everybody that I know that has tried betterhelp.com, uh, has enjoyed the experience and, um, yeah. So if you're interested in trying it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental, fill out a questionnaire, and then you'll get matched with a betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. Uh, you need to be over 18. And uh, try to remember the slash mental part on the uh, on the web address. Then they'll know that you came from this podcast. And hopefully they'll uh, continue to sponsor this show. This is an email that I uh, got from a woman who calls herself Louise, and she wrote, Paul, I was just diagnosed with bipolar 2. I'm 48 years old and feel my life has been wasted. Any advice for handling this diagnosis at a, uh, in, and then in quotes, older age? Thank you. Um, and you know, my thought was, um, that your new life is just beginning. You have a manageable illness. It's not a terminal illness. And you've already been living with with it. So the only thing that's really changed is now you have more information to help yourself manage it. You know, don't try to be your own doctor. You wouldn't do it with diabetes. So don't do it with this. Find a, a good shrink and I think a, a good therapist as well and let them know the truth about what's going on with you so that they can they can help you um you know fuck pride you know fuck the stigma around mental illness um you know I, i'm not saying that dealing with a mental illness is easy or fun but it's worth the effort and in my experience i get to meet a lot of interesting people when i'm open about my struggles and allowing people to help you is giving them an opportunity to love you, which feels good to them. So it's not only helping you, it's helping them help themselves. You know, anybody that's going to judge you for having a mental illness, fuck them. They are not worthy of your company. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go sip some cocoa and nap inside of a rainbow. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. 
It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread, silent, invisible, just wailing, stuck in the grip of the obsession, derealization, depersonalization, the suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get, you know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, <laughs> and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. <laughs> and I, I didn't get that job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here with Michael Cannon, who uh, I haven't seen in a couple of years, but uh, I used to see probably once a week for a couple of couple of years. We're both uh, recovering addict, drunk slash nut jobs. Absolutely. <laughs> it's probably good. once a week, I'd say, for a good couple of years, wasn't it? At least? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scoot up just a tiny bit closer okay. to the mic. There you go. Yeah, a little. Yeah, perfect. Are we good? Perfect. Okay. Um, how you been, man? I'm doing good. Yeah. I'm the, doing great. The last time I saw you, uh, we were talking about recording, and you were uh, in the process of writing a book about your life, was it? or That's, or that's correct. Your mental struggles? Yeah. A memoir. Yes, all of that. Yes, yeah. So I remember that, and we talked about it, and then there was another four-year period of yeah. editing and polishing and rewriting and rewriting and editing and the obsession that crept yeah. into the writing process so cut to eight years later we get a book wow. so that was yeah, yeah yeah and it's called hunting concrete lions hunting concrete lions what is that a reference to or do people that, need to read it to find out no that's a good point it's a reference to i was looking for a way to sort of capture the stories a sort of a metaphor for the story and it was about in a nutshell codependency so it was like the idea of searching for happiness outside myself and the hunting concrete lions it was based around a story and i was i was probably like 14 15 years old and in a bar with my friend and we were drinking and shooting the shit as you do and i remember he'd gone to the bar and come back from the bar with a newspaper under his arm. And he showed me this article about a guy who'd gone off around the world and he was sort of sleeping with these wealthy women and he was getting paid to almost like a male gigolo sort of thing. And we're 14, 15 years old and we're thinking, this is bloody brilliant. Like, <laughs> this is this is what I want to do with my life. So as you know, the story gets embellished. And it's like, can you imagine going to America and like <laughs> meeting a woman who had loads of money and imagine a big house with a pool and a jacuzzi and concrete lions on the gateposts. <laughs> so, you know, the moral is be careful what you wish for because it was really that story of searching for something outside of me. Basically, make everything look good on the outside so nobody will know how I feel on the inside. Well, so, I'm sure none of the listeners can relate to that. <laughs> um, God, it's such a universal theme. Yeah. And, and yet... So many of us battle with it every fucking day. I mean, how many times in the last month have we all said, I'm doing fine when we're having a day when maybe we're not? Sure. How about you? Yeah. Do you know, 
of late, I've been fortunate that things are going really well. That was not the case. So I've got, I set the bar really low with regards to mental illness. So, you know, when I can wake up and stay in that frame of mind, it's a, for many, many years, certainly, you know, fine comes in and there are days when I can say, hey, and maybe I'm not being as emotionally honest as I could be. Mm. But I've, as a rule at the minute, things are good. So That's I'm on correct. that, I'm enjoying that space yeah. and... uh yeah, I love too that you said at the minute because that's 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 all we can really worry about. Absolutely, scooch forward just a couple of inches. Yeah, yes, perfect. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, did you get married since uh, I last saw you, or no? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, I'm 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 good at one or two things. Sex relationships is not one of them. Oh, well, we'll we'll get into that. Okay. Um, you're from the Isle of Wight. Isle of, Isle of Man. Isle of I'm Man. so sorry. No worries. Oh, Easily that done. is such a fucking American thing to say. You know, you Canadians. You're from, <laughs> you're from, you're from Ireland, uh, England, uh, whatever. Australia. Same thing. Australia is the In one New Zealand. I get. Yes. Yeah, Australia. What part of Australia are you from? Yeah. yeah. How is the uh, Isle of Man uh, accent different than uh, mainland UK? I would say it's sort of in the middle uh, you've got a, a mixture there. Southern Scotland's the nearest point, so you've got a mixture of sort of Northern Ireland, Southern Scotland, Northern England. Yeah, because I do hear the Scottish thing a little bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So it's right in the middle of that sort of melting pot there. Yeah. Uh, the Isle of Man, what was it like growing up there? For for people that don't aren't familiar with it, describe what it's most famous for, um, et cetera, et cetera. I think most people, it's about 35 miles long by 15 miles. So it's right in the middle of the Irish Sea. And it's, I would say it's most, most famous. They have a motorbike race each year called the Isle of Man TT races. And these guys go at like 200 mile an hour, just flying around this racetrack. They convert the one road on the Isle of, or the yes. main road on the Isle of Man into a racetrack. That, that's such an important distinction is because you, when you use the word racetrack, it is a road going through villages. Right. Where it's past someone's driveway. Right. Mailboxes. Yeah. Trees. Post offices, you know, dogs roaming around. And, that, and they're all obstacles. And my, I remember one year I would marshal a place called the Mountain Mile. So my job would be to throw stones at the sheep to keep them off the track. <laughs> because the bikes would hit the animals, you know, and they, <laughs> obviously at 200 yeah. mile an hour, it's not a pretty sight, you know. Yeah. And would the driver be killed, the rider? Yes, most time. I think they've had somewhere like 269 deaths since it began. Isn't it generally like a couple of years or something like that? And the rest, yeah. Not including people who are watching and right. all this. The population doubles, so there's so many bikes and so many accidents. It's just a shit show. It's Some of the most fascinating footage I've ever seen. It's es incredible. Especially yeah. the, yeah, the yeah. on on bike cameras. Crazy. You're like, how... It, how my asshole tightens just me watching too. it. Me too. That's why I don't have a motorbike. I like. Yeah. I saw it and I was like, oh. and parents, you're not having a motorbike. I was like, that's okay with me. No problem. So is everybody, for the most part on the island, into it or do a lot of people hate it? That's a good question. Um, the people oh, that you know, what's the general consensus? I think I think they enjoy it and I think they're glad when it's over. 
So kind of like a little town after ski season's yes. over. You know, we filled nice our bank accounts, but, you know. Yeah, we're go, done. Yeah, go back. Yeah. Um, what are, in a, in a broad stroke, what are the, the main issues uh, from the past and today that you've struggled with? Oh, how long have we got? <laughs> oh, the main issues from the past. And how oh, old are you? 42, coming up on 42, so 41, okay. 42 okay. much. From the past... Alcoholism, obviously, mm -hmm. addiction. Um, the earliest stuff would have been everything from food, attention seeking, um, you know, depression at sort of 16, 17, serious mental illness, psychosis, 16, 17. You've been and, in psych wards? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They've got a bench named after me at one <laughs> Are you it's serious? Just, no. <laughs> they will have you sold that, man. You sold <laughs> you that. Look, nearly had you. Yeah, was yeah, it yeah. a concrete we, lion we bench? Yeah, the one of the, well, it should be. It should okay. be. But um, no, so basically the whole the whole gamut of, okay. of mental illness. Okay. I mean, I could get into specifics of all of it. Where would you like to start? You know, if you can think of any moments from childhood that, that kind of uh, paint a condensed picture um you know, I was thinking about this because I know you, mm -hmm. you, the childhood's a big factor in the show. And I was looking back and I was thinking it triggered a memory of being four years old and going to four or five years old and being at, at my first few days at school. And I remember we were in art class and we were stood around a table and I remember needing to go to the toilet. And rather than putting my hand up and saying I needed to go to the toilet... I just pissed myself. Wow. And I can remember the intense burning in my face of shame and how all the other children were taken away because they didn't want to shame one child, but one child was left there with a pool of piss all over the floor. Wow. And I can remember, you know, those moments. So that, that behavior was going to carry with me for many years that inability to ask for help i'd rather piss myself and be ashamed than ask for help it was one wow. of those but that was that and i think you know what why why could why was it so difficult at that age to say can i go to the toilet Phew. no idea in in your house growing up what were your needs recognized um or was it every man for himself kind of a deal or what you know, the first, I would say the first 10 years, you know, I've looked back and, and it's funny because the layers of the onion sort of thing, more comes off as you go through it and, and more is revealed and all the rest of it. Um, but those, I was very fortunate. I had two parents that loved me. They, you know, I did well at school, played a load of sport, had a load of friends. Um, both parents loved their sport. So they were sort of exercise junkies. There was a lot of, you know, it was like past the bat, like a relay. One would go off up around the mountain running, come back. The next one would go off around the mountain running. So there was, so there was that aspect of it. Um, did I get my needs met? That's a really good question. You know, maybe the expression of love. Um, I haven't got a, I'd have to think about a decent answer to that yeah. with regards to what were my need i think the my hung my hunches if you have to think about it yeah, that, that answers probably the question. something it, was 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 missing but sure. i don't want to you know put words 
in your the, in your you mouth. Know, no, exactly. When I you know when I look back, the the big one was the divorce at eleven, when everything seemed to be picture perfect, and then there was this divorce, which for me at that point there was the turning point, for sure. So I can you know I have a fondness for these years here. It wasn't perfect by any means, but I was privileged in many ways that I didn't you know the I didn't have the, the you know the verbal and physical abuse right. or whatever but it was you know that turning point at 11 years old I would say yeah. was a was a big one something I see a lot too is is that the um the manner in which an adult expresses love and the manner in which a child wants to receive love sometimes don't connect so it's not a matter of one person being at fault it's just the the um you know the pipeline for that love being delivered kind of hits a hits a snag you know for instance a kid may um love uh cuddling but the parent's not a cuddler but um you know uh is good at giving verbal compliments or something. And I wasn't even aware of of that being a thing until my therapist uh, told me to look into this thing called uh, the languages of love. There's five languages of love. And it's a really good thing for couples to explore, especially earlier in their relationships so that you know which ones are important. So it could be physical contact, Having your undivided attention, saying nice things, yeah. helping me, yeah. um, uh, buying gifts, stuff like that, which I've always found to be like the least important one, uh, but that's just me. Right. Um, so, that, sorry for getting off on a sidetrack there, but uh, talk about the divorce. The divorce. You know, you've just triggered a thought there with, I'm thinking now about, you know, which was another thing as you go through and, and reflecting back and going, you know, at that age, what age was it when I had that disconnect from the head and the heart, which is the point where, as a young lad, you learn that it's not okay to feel. And I think that would be the thing with having my needs met, it would be to sort of circle around to that point would be, don't cry, don't express any emotion, don't be a pussy, don't be a wimp. And, you know, dad was very athletic and on the football pitch. So you've got that sort of socialization process taking part and then you've got these social mandates of the athlete you're going to have to show up on the sports field or you know that hasn't come into play at that age but the inability to feel and express feelings and emotions and having somebody receive them and hold the space for them I think in that area there the needs weren't getting met that that is sadly so so common and it's i wonder how many parents are even aware that you are not helping your child by telling them what to feel i i know they probably think they're preparing their children for a um chaotic and cruel world but um i I think there's probably other ways and they're going to discover that on their own anyway um, it just seems so much better to give them tools to cope with their feelings than to tell them, don't feel what you're feeling. And, and particularly for the guys as well, I think it's yeah. compacted. You know, those be a man, those three words, mm-hmm. be a man. Oh, yeah. Isn't that at the heart of 
I think depression it, for guys. Oh, I would yeah. say absolutely at the root of it. I think the two most toxic ones are telling boys, you know, that you have to be macho or be a man and you That's can't it. cry, and telling girls that um, you have to be polite, that it's okay, ladylike yes. to be polite, right. to not stand up for yourself, That's great, to, yeah. to yeah, you know, etc., yeah, etc. Yeah. Et sure. it, 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 yeah. Um, so continue. So yeah, that so that would have been the first. I'd have said, you know, disconnection at, at that age. That that from the head and the heart. That's a big one because yeah. that's been a long journey. What do you remember yeah. about about the the particulars of the divorce? Was it nasty? Um, Who did no, you well, live the, with? The thing was is that it was just very simply everything. I didn't hear the parents argue. There was there was no build up to this breakdown. I remember sitting at the dining room table. And being told sort of dad was leaving to be closer to work and work was quarter of a mile down half a mile down the road and, and, and dad and, was, what was work's name work, yeah, 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 right. <laughs> how old was work, how old was work? Yeah. <laughs> oh dear so and then of course you're in a small town and to try and protect a lie in a small town, I mean, good oh. luck with that. But I remember thinking, I remember my sister got to express the emotion. She was like, fuck you, yeah, or she didn't, probably didn't swear, but those were the yeah. general kids. So she was off, but as the younger brother, I wasn't, I didn't, this was what I thought, you're not old enough to know what's going on here, so keep your mouth shut. So that's when I really stuffed the feelings. So I just kept quiet. And that was my MO, like, I'm just going to shut down. I'm just going to say nothing because I don't want to upset anybody. I don't want to. But then I started to concoct a story to fulfill, like, dad's moving. To, so that if anybody asked me, I had a story to tell the people at school as to why dad was. So dad's going down to be closer to work and he's got a new car and we're going to Disneyland next year. And, yeah. you know, I go to school and I find out from school what's going on. And dad's got somebody on the side and... You know, so then I've got the shame of like trying to protect this lie that I'm not supposed to know about. So it was all the lies, the family secrets, you know, mm. nobody's meant to know what's going on. And the elephants in the room, the elephants in the room. And, and I can, you know, I get it. And it's not to point the finger at them. I would preface all this by saying it's not. I know that they had their reasons for doing what they did. And we all make mistakes and yeah. we all unintentionally hurt people. Yeah. 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 So that was protecting that and then sort of you know walking around thinking what what's wrong with me and thinking everybody knew what was wrong with me and and the sort of the shame and the the, the paranoia mm -hmm. the paranoia and the, and the funny irony is nobody thinks about us as much as we think other people Absolutely. are thinking or want them to think about us yeah it's <sighs> It's it's an awful truth. It's a fantastic and awful truth at the same time. Isn't it? Yeah. So much of life is not personal. It's it says nothing to do with us. No. Um so then what's the what's the next step? So the divorce, you shut down. So shut down, really shut down. So went from doing well at school, playing the sports to like fuck life. I'm going to go off and I'm going to do my and that's when I found you know, the substances, mm -hmm. alcohol, drugs, and, and they worked. You know, they they did what they changed the way I felt about myself. So was it hard to score drugs on the Isle of it Man? It was. You had to be good. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't do. It wasn't so much the 
you know, the heroin started at about 15, but the alcohol, going up to the local golf club and drinking and stuff and realizing I like this, this is... This Was it legal for you to drink at that age? No, absolutely oh, okay. not. What's a legal age in... I think no. you could be in a bar at 16, but I think it was 18. Okay. Uh, heroin at 15. Heroin at 15. You wasted no time. No time, straight in. How, you know, what was your thought process at 15 going right for fuck it. that? Fuck it, huh? You wanted oblivion. Yeah, give me it. Yeah, there was no... I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, I'm feeling a lot of shame here and I can't... Exp- <laughs> I, I've got nobody to express it to. I'm thinking, that works. Give me more of that. Look at my pimples. I feel overwhelmed. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, dear. How did you... How did you go about doing heroin for the first time, finding it? Who... who I'm always amazed by people in their... At, at, at such young ages, um, how does that? I mean, there's always one guy that you know is doing <laughs> yes. it. So you find him yes. and befriend him. In in and, my high school, etc., nobody that I knew of did or had heroin. So that's why I'm kind of uh, curious about yeah, everything well, else, acid, you know, etc. Okay, but, well, yeah. on a small island as well, it was difficult to get it in, so the price doubled when it came in, so you really had to sort of know. And, you know, I just struck lucky. <laughs> Found the right guy at the right time. You and, were junky lucky. And, and the best bit was, I, I said to myself, because I'd seen all the posters around town, you know, with the skull and crossbones and the needles instead of the, the, the crossbones and stuff, and, and I thought, if I smoke it, I won't get addicted. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just have a casual smoke. There's no way. And, you know, so. I love that there's a poster showing the danger of heroin as a guy goes by at 200 miles an hour <laughs> on a motorcycle. The irony. <laughs> um, so you started smoking it. And how long until you felt like it had a grip on you? I th- years, I think. I mean, I smoked it and then I stopped and then I had a relationship breakdown, and that really triggered, like, mm-hmm. I need this now. That was a few years later. Um, but, yeah, the heroin, probably the physical stuff. I started to have that flu-like symptoms, and the physical mm-hmm. stuff started to set in. So I was like, okay, do a little bit more. That, and that miraculously relieved the flu-like symptoms. So mm-hmm. you know, then you're into this. Then taking tablets, like Vicodin-type tablets to... Offset it, then you're in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What's next? When did the first mental breakdown? That's a, yeah, I was just going to say it. So after the, after this little heroin binge and I started on ecstasy. So I started taking ecstasy and I was shooting ecstasy and stuff. And that's when the panic attack started. So I had these really severe panic attacks. But not while you were on ecstasy. Not while I was on ecstasy. This was after I was on ecstasy. Gotcha. So that started, and it was absolutely terrifying. I remember having that first panic attack and just thinking, I'm dying. I mean, my heart was racing for about 50 minutes, and I I drove to the emergency wing, and I thought, if I drive in there, they're going to put me in the nuthouse. So there's no way I'm going into the hospital. But I didn't really know whether it was something physical or something mental or... What was going on? So you but just the, hung around. So until I just you hung could... around, and I drove, drove around the countryside, and I drove around, and then it subsided, and then it came back, and then oh. I hid in the house, and then I gradually just—I was having these panic attacks like right throughout the day, consistently. 
so it became safer just to be in the house. Yeah. Describe so, all the symptoms that you can think of that you would feel. Uh, the the room going into tunnel vision, um, heart racing off the chart, sweating, shaking, clammy hands, um, oh, just spinning, the room spinning. Wow. And then just huge fear, just fear right through. Um, that's intense consistently and I and I didn't I couldn't tell anybody because I was oh yeah it was but when I look back now like it was brutal that poor it kid was, but yeah oh my god um, have I a, had to do some work on that a previous guest that we had and you might have listened to his episode but Dan Harris talked about medicating himself with uh, cocaine and ecstasy and then he he's a network news anchor for abc news and he had an on-air panic attack right hosting yeah. the national news but um it was after he had started doing ecstasy and and other yeah. other kinds of uh, uh drugs but yeah. go, go ahead so so that had started and then it just became more and more sinister that I started to think that the TV was talking to me. Wow. And then, and this is the interesting bit, is the the religious delusion started to come up. And this, you know, we, there was a lot of religion growing up. And I could see that what was happening is I could get into that. But what was happening here in this sort of psychosis was, you know, my mum had had this spiritual experience that she'd shared with me. And I remember, because my first fears I remember being in church, you know, and this idea of heaven and hell and the fire and the brimstones and all that God's stuff. God's watching and you. And God's you... watching the power, all that sort of stuff. And I remember mum had had this sort of spiritual experience and she'd shared it with me. And it was, you know, she'd turned her life to Christianity. She'd found something that worked for her and mm -hmm. she turned her life to that. So I remember praying all the time and saying, Jesus, you've got to help me and on my knees and, you know, every night praying for this experience to happen. And it wasn't happening. So I'm thinking there's something I've gone doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And was so there a denomination that she belonged um, to or was it just a general Christianity? General Christianity okay. thing. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of going on, and I, I reflected on this because this started to come out in the psychosis where I thought mum was so pure that I must be the devil. And I, I remember thinking it was the family secret that they'd cut my tail off at birth and that really I'd had this big forked tail. So I was sitting in the house and I would sit there. Yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? I would sit there and I would be just gripping the armrest. like I'm, I'm, And I would look in the mirror and I, it, would, it was like my face would morph into like this demonic type i mean it was terrifying and how old were you at this point i was probably 17 Holy going on for 18 fuck. i yeah. mean teenagers are evil but that's over the top <laughs> <laughs> terrifying absolutely terrifying and i can feel I, as i'm talking about it now i'm like i must sound crazy but it was really genuinely no, it's going it's on. Heartbreaking. It, it, it's heartbreaking. It's oh, just I've, I've when heard, I yes, I've, it is not the first. We had uh, uh, a couple on um, Mark and Julia Lukacs, and she uh, had psychosis with re religiosity, and she was committed to a psych ward. Yeah. and yeah, she thought she was the devil, and that there uh, you go. yeah. So that. You know, and that stuck with me. So, but I'm, so at this point, I'm agoraphobic. I'm stuck yes. in the house. I'm, I'm so terrified. Of Was it. it nice in Halloween that you didn't have to get a costume? <laughs> yeah. 
the uh, can you every door like yes yes i know it's an amazing costume it's so lifelike <laughs> you don't even have to sing. give me the candy yeah you don't even because we had to sing when we went yeah. to the doors like hop tune a it was called so we'd have to sing a riff but no that wasn't happening okay yeah um so when did you let somebody know that you were experiencing this i remember breaking down i think at one point and my mum, who was still in the house, saying, you know, if it carries on, you, you, you're going to really have to go to the nut house sort of thing. Yeah. And um, eventually going to the doctor. But I couldn't tell the doctor the truth. So I would go to the doctor and, you know, get this. And we went on several times. I ended up on this sort of low-dose antidepressant. Um, didn't do anything. And so it just carried on and it carried on. And then I was drinking and the drinking started to make me feel sort of okay. Mm -hmm. You know, it, 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 there was enough of a sedative. Um, so this went on for a couple of years of just going backwards and forwards with the doctor. And eventually the doctor... And this was a general practitioner, not a psychiatrist. Not a psychiatrist, just yeah. a, a general practitioner. And I even, I started a university course in that state. And I look back now and I, it's beyond me how I managed to get to university, um, do the first term. I dropped out after the first term. But even then, I remember sitting in the doctor's office and going, just fucking tell him the truth. Just go in there, tell him you're fucked. Tell him you need the strongest. Just take whatever they give you and get on with it. And I went in there and he said to me, is there anything you want to share with me? And I said, no. Uh, you know, Isn't that just, amazing? Just Isn't that amazing? Could not get the words out. Couldn't do it. What would you if you, if you could go into a time machine and go back and talk to your seventeen year old self? What would that kid want to hear, and what would you want to say to that kid? Fucking get off. Go and ask for help. I do. Go and tell the truth of exactly what is going on. And what do you think he would have said? Yeah, go fuck off. <laughs> this you got a lighter? <laughs> so, complete inability to ask for help or to tell anybody what was going on, the shame was so deep. My biggest, you know, the fear of ending up in a nut house, it wasn't going to happen. And, and the fear that you, you were the devil. I was the devil. And that you were going to be revealed. <sighs> I even at one thought, I thought that I'd had the 666 tattooed somewhere on my body and I was trying to, like, where is it? Is it somewhere I can't see it? Mm. I mean, it was just dark. Dark. So dark. Yeah. Um, so then what? So then I I go to university, drop out, come home, and that's when I went to the doctor and said, "Look, I'm at that point. Like I I had to do something." And he increased. I still didn't tell him the full truth, mm -hmm. but I told him enough to get an antidepressant that it was one of the old tricyclic ones that yeah. sort of those were like the first wave of yeah. antidepressants and so we said at the time you know i was what i did get though i remember being with a friend's girlfriend the three of us were in a room and she'd been prescribed diazepam valium mm -hmm. and she'd given me one and it was like for the first time i felt normal after taking this tablet 
So I bought a few off her and I couldn't leave the house without them. So I had to know, even for up to the age of 30, I was still, up to the point of getting sober, I was still walking around with, I couldn't leave the house without a Valium in my pocket. I didn't take it, but I had to know it was there Mm. in case I had the panic attack. Yeah, so it sort of gave me the psychological advantage that Mm -hmm. I could function and get from A to B, as long as I knew I had this... Exit door. Yeah. And so that was, um, that was that, you know. There was a question I wanted to, before that we are talking about, oh, did you share with that uh, doctor that you were experiencing psychosis or was he just only knew about the depression and anxiety? Anxiety? No, I couldn't yeah. bring myself to mention when did When did you first reveal that to someone or it was revealed without you wanting to? The second psychosis. Talk about that. So the first time I'd gone into rehab, I'd have been 30... What would I have been? 30? I think I was 30, 30, 31 when Mm -hmm. I went into rehab. And I'd been in rehab nine days. And I started to just have lots of rushes. It started with lots of rushes, like this Russian feeling, almost like you would get on ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And I started to just be up late at night. Um, writing lots of shit that was just bullshit, but I <laughs> so thought it was incredible. Was it mania? Like oh, man. Yo, God, yeah. And so I'm writing lots of stuff, and then I'm starting to, like, re- reflect back on all this stuff that I'd learned, like religious stuff. I, so I decide, right, I'm going to rewrite the Bible. <laughs> so then... Why not? Why not? I mean, you've, I've you've got the energy right now, man. Sure. I'm up at three and four in the morning and I'm in, an, I'm in the treatment center. And you can also chime in from the devil's point of view. I've got the devil. I've got, yeah, oh yeah. I can round both table. sides of the story. Yeah. It's a round table with it's just fair. you. Yeah. In that moment, you're God, but you've also been the but, devil. Well, that, well that's, and I got even more sides of the story as this yes. episode increased. Okay. So I was, so this was sort of going on and, and I'm, and I'm, and then I'm sitting in this, um, we had this area where people just sat and smoked in treatment. Now, when I went into treatment, I was like, I, I wasn't going in to get sober. I was going in just to let everybody know that I wasn't really a heroin addict. There was, you know, definitely didn't have a problem with alcohol. Just going to let them know 30 days, nice treatment center, whatever. Get the heat off. Get the heat off, basically. Yeah. But I'm having this sort of experience. And so I'm sitting in this garden and I decided that I was being abducted by aliens. So I'm sitting in this garden, I'm like, everybody's, they're all aliens and they're going to abduct me. And then I decided that I was on the Truman Show. You've seen the Truman Show? I have. And you're not the first person who has described that experience. Yeah. And then I was like, I was having such an awakening that I decided I was the second coming of the Messiah himself, that I was Jesus. But I was an improved version. I was Jesus Bond. No. And a, I swear, and a guy turned into the, came into the treatment center on a motorbike with a black helmet, a black BMW motorbike. And I thought he was delivering it for me to go and save the world. So I started trying to take the helmet off him in the middle of the treatment center and said, the bike's for me. I'm going to save the world. Oh my God. I got, just got started to get darker and darker. And so next minute I'm just, and a guy walked past me and he said to me, the air is free. 
and it completely flipped me out. It was like somebody doing that in front of me. And I... How did it flip you out? The clarity that I'd got everything wrong my whole life. That everything... That I'd taken everything for granted. That nothing was what it was. I mean, I was sitting in this treatment center and I was like... I was back in the Garden of Eden. I was eventually curled up on a bed, like back in the womb. And I was burning, absolutely burning, sweating. And... I could feel my heartbeat once and they called the fire brigade, I think it was, to call the police or whatever they do. They came in the room and they had the defibrillators on me. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to eat a plant because I'm thinking I'm back in the Garden of Eden. I'm having all these, like, I got it all wrong, like everything's provided for. I've chased money, power and prestige my whole life and it's nothing to do with that. And like, here I am and it was all in front of me all along. How could I have been so stupid? And then this whole regression thing was going on. So the, 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 the clarity you had, was that a hallucination, quote, clarity or a genuine moment of clarity a genuine moment of clarity in the middle of madness i'm having trouble wrapping my head Mm. around that can you explain that some more all the religious stuff that i you know stuff from the bible was making sense to you know where it's written in allegory and metaphor isn't it and mm-hmm. i'd taken it literally so i didn't understand that if you meant if certain things meant the fruit means one thing water right. means life like you know and if, if you can do them i'm not religious by the way in any shape right. from but you know i think mm-hmm. so this is going on and i'm having the clarity of all these things like bits of wisdom are coming into my head and making sense and at the same time i'm in the middle of this madness so it's, it's hard to get your head around, isn't it, that this, yeah. that this is going on. So it's sort of flipping in and out of, I mean, I'm out of my mind at this stage. I'm, I'm completely, like, gone. And do but, the, the people at the rehab, obviously, you're eating plants, you're trying to take plants, helmets well, off of people. The thing was, this was the interesting thing. The thing was, they were trying to put medication in my mouth, and I kept refusing it because I thought it was a test. I thought it was a test to see if I'd really woken up or not. And if I needed the medication, it would show that I was still asleep. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to put the medication in my mouth and I was spitting it out and stuff. And they were like, you got to take the medication, you got to take the medication. So then I didn't. And I find myself on a bed curled up in a ball in the fetal position, thinking I'm back in the womb. Police, fire brigade, whatever, come in, cart me out on a gurney, take me into an ambulance. And I'm thinking I'm getting taken away by aliens at this point. And they take me to what I now know is Santa Monica, UCLA. And I am out of my mind. And I'm in Santa Monica, UCLA. And I'm lying there on the bed. And the David Letterman show is playing on the screen. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, they're going to kill me. And there's a security guard in front of me. And he's got a gun by the side of his leg. And I'm looking at the David Letterman show and then I'm thinking, they're projecting me live on the late show with David Letterman right now. I have to kill myself live on the late show with David Letterman to save the world and then the show's over. Wow. And then the thoughts went to, what you need to do is take the security guard's gun, put it in your mouth and pull the trigger and the show's going to be, the director's going to come and shout, 
okay, cut, show, show's over, you've done it, you've passed. So I was going through this thing, your pussy take his gun. You're a pussy, take his gun. You have the balls, go up there, take his gun and do it. And this was going on in my head and I, and I couldn't do it. I, could, I could, didn't have, and I was shuffling forward to the end of the bed and thinking, right, big guy like this in front of me. I'm like, I couldn't, I was like, and then I decided like, fuck, fuck it, I'm, I'm going. For somehow they had my bag there and I decided, fuck it, I'm going. And the security guard jumped on me, um, pinned me down and they put me in four point restraints. Um, thank fucking God as well. I'm thinking about this now, what was going on in my head. And did you realize even in your state then that if you put the gun in your mouth, you would be dead or did you think no, you I were thought it was just on a show? I thought it was just like these were actors as part of the show and this was a test to see if I'd really woken up or not. I see. Wow. This, I'll, I'll, I'll bring this full circle because there's a really good point to this in a minute, which is really fascinating How for did me. Paul Schaefer react to you uh, doing all of that? Paul Schaefer? Which is he's, the, he's the letterman sidekick. Oh, <laughs> Aiden and abetting. <laughs> Go ahead. Paul Schaefer. Um... So he jumps on you. The guard jumps on you. He jumps on me, puts me in these four-point restraints, and they start trying to inject me with whatever the fuck they're trying to do to knock me out. And there, some guy's reading what I now know is the 51 involuntary psychiatry. But he was shaking when he was reading it, so I thought he was an actor who just didn't have his shit together. And so this was going on. But then, it, I mean, there was some dark twist because I'm in these, and I'm thinking they're going to hobble me. You, do you remember in that, what was that film where she hobbles him when it's feet are in the restraints? Oh, um, Misery? Misery. Yeah. I'm think I'm going to get hobbled because now they've got me in these restraints. I'm thinking, fuck. And the stark thoughts that were going on in my head at that time were just way out there. But the interesting thing was this guy. Oh, no, this is all interesting. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Cool. It's still like, with me. Don't worry. It's me. going to get interesting. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, this, yes. So this guy kept coming around the corner and saying to me, are you willing to tell the truth yet? And I was like, fuck you to tell the fucking truth. The backstory to the last, you know, the 10 year. I mean, my story is like Pinocchio. That's the director's cut version. I mean, I didn't know how to tell it. Every bit of my life was just an, a lie or an embellishment or bullshit or whatever. So he came around the corner and he kept saying to me, I'll never forget me, he had a black and white shirt on and he sits next to me and he had this gold boxing glove on a chain around his neck. And he's sitting there and he said, are you ready to tell the truth yet? I'm saying, fuck you, blah, blah, blah. And he goes off and he comes back again. He goes, and this is God, God knows how long this went on for. And I get to a point and I think, if I'm going to die, I want to purge my soul before I go. Like, I'm going to, maybe that's like, and I kept hearing, know the truth and the truth will set you free. Know the truth and the truth. Like, that was going on in my mm. head. So he sit down and I said, okay. And he said, okay, start with what drugs have you done? Um, so I start the confession. I'd, um, I'd done marijuana and alcohol and heroin and crack. And have you ever slept with prostitutes? Yeah, you owe a lot of money, don't you, Michael? Yeah, I owe a lot of money. This was going on and on and on. I don't remember anything after that other than falling asleep. I mean, I, I went, must have passed out or whatever. But I woke up the next day completely clear. 
zero signs of the night before. I mean, I'm still in a set of four-point restraints, mm-hmm. but I had no signs of the delusions from the night before. Clear, terrified, but like, what the fuck just went on? But I, I, I'm, I'm back with the program, sort mm. of thing. And I would say I haven't felt threatened by alcohol or drugs since that day. So I've been sober since, since that time till today. The interesting bit is, later on I was like, what the fuck went on there? You know what I mean? What was that all about? And so I started Googling after a few years sober, I started to Google like, f- thought I was Jesus, you know? It sounds like uh, bipolar psychosis. Well, yeah, well this, they, they when I got into the treatment center, yeah. uh, I'm sorry, when I, they took me to a secure nut house, like, you know, right. maximum security, people with names carved all over their arms, real yeah. good stuff, you know? <laughs> The, the bed, sink, and toilet all molded to the floor, nowhere to hang yourself, shoelaces gone, and, you know, I'm sitting there, but I'm clear-headed. This was the bit that I, 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 I was like, I feel okay. Now, you can't tell people that after that episode, because they're like, that was nuts, you're nuts, and you're staying in here. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, so it was one of those situations. And later on, I, I find out, so I start to search, like, how does this you know what went on there and i came across the work of a guy called john weir perry and he'd set up a place called diabasis in san francisco and there was actually a section now in the diagnostic and statistic manual for spiritual emergencies so where is the psycho and the psychosis the spiritual emergency plays out the same as a psychosis so it appears the same and this guy was taking people in acute psychotic episodes to a place in San Francisco, he was monitoring them. Rather than medicating them, he was loving them. And about 70 to 80% were going into immediate remission. They were able to go through this mythological reintegration of the psyche. What? Right through, yeah, no kidding. There's a, I found this book called Trials of the Visionary Mind, Spiritual Emergency and the Renewal Process. And what was happening for me was like a complete reintegration of the myth of my life into something of a healthy worldview. And I read this book and it was just all these case studies up right back, like American Indians and people. And and I was reading it and I was like, these people have gone through the same thing. And it just made sense. And I was reading it because I hadn't had any signs since that day. I've not had any signs of the same thing. Um, Wow. It it was fascinating. Yeah, it was really fascinating stuff. So whereas it could be deemed psychosis, it shows up as now they have a section called spiritual emergency. And it was fascinating work. John Weir Perry, Stanislav Groff did a load of great work on it. Um, yeah, very interesting stuff. I, I had heard that term before, but I had always kind of um, uh, been skeptical that that, that that was a thing. Um, but I've heard enough people talk about it now, people that I know are credible people that um yeah i it was i describe it now as like a spiritual awakening that's the only way i could describe it you know it it makes sense too because the power of love um if it is a psyche thing and it's not a chemical thing um it's amazing what it can repair what it can heal um, and, and the and the information in the body 
when it gets now what it takes to get to that point of that so much fragmentation and then you know just <laughs> rupture and repair or whatever it is to get to that point who knows for me i think the liberating part was the honesty part you know the the being able the confession i see you know that 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 for me was I mean, if you want to refer to that as a love and somebody holding a space to be able to have that yeah. confession type thing, hell yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so that the, pur- the purging of the truth for yes. you was kind of what unclogged the Yes, the I, I look back on that and go, you know, if you look at the lies and manipulation that preceded that, I mean, to have that moment of t- telling the truth for probably the first time, confessing to stuff you know, like the age-old principle, like you would go and sit with a priest or something and mm-hmm. tell him you do a confession there, that type of stuff. Right. Or, um, you know, maybe inventory work in, mm-hmm. in, in recovery. Right. Um, so that certainly... Did, was, did, looking back, can you describe the vibe of the guy that you did this with, whatever you can remember? If you can, if not, no, no, no big deal. It was, it was so sinister at the time, to be honest with you. It was, you know, he was just ma- matter of fact, I you see. know, yeah. just like tell the truth. Okay. So it's thing. not like he was this incredibly empathic. No, that was not. The, wow. That's no, so no. interesting. Yeah. That was not the case at all. So you were just so fed up. You were like, well, fuck, I might as well tell the truth. Right. Yeah. You, or, or thinking I was going to die. If you didn't. It, well, yeah, I was going to die. So if I died, I had the idea of that I was going to be free if I told I the truth. I see. You know, that was the... And you know what? In kind of a sense, that was true. Absolutely. You would have... You were certainly headed towards a place that wasn't good if you kept totally. all that stuff inside. Yeah. So maybe so, you are the devil. Maybe. You just never know. This interview is over. You get done. You get done. <laughs> wow, man. That is that is some intense shit. Wow. You certainly had better days, you know? <laughs> so how how do you feel today? You you haven't had any remission as far as the uh, psychosis. You've been sober now for how many years? Over ten years. Over ten years. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what are what are the day to day things then that you struggle with? Is it hard being as handsome and fit as you are? Is it a burden? <laughs> it's the worst. Yeah, it's the worst feeling. <laughs> I have to work so hard at it, though. Please tell me you're miserable being so fit and handsome. <laughs> Every day. Thank God. Oh, the worst. Um, day-to-day struggle. I feel like a fraud because I have such a good life today. You know, I really do. I... I That's okay, man. If you can't think of anything, that's a fucking home run. And and I'd have to give you that hope. I really would. You know, because 
and I would just step back a little bit and I'd say, you know, I was put on medication after this experience and I was told I would be on medication for the rest of my life. I was diagnosed bipolar, whatever the hell it mm. was, they, you're nuts type stuff. Um, put on medication and and I went on that and there was an interesting part. I got kicked out of America in um, 2009 and I ended up in the Middle East. Because your visa ran out? Um, yeah, I tried to get back in the country on a visa mm. and... Um, they kicked me out of the country. You're mm -hmm. not coming back in. You've been in and out so many times. And they found a business card, accused me of working and blah, blah, blah. So I ended up back in the Middle East. And my mum was living out there. So I, I was living on a little island called Cyprus, which is... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just south of Greece, right? Just south of Greece. Yeah, yeah. So I'm there and I felt really good. And I'd had a chance to do like the repair work with, you know, recovery type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, saying a few apologies and amends mm -hmm. to people and so forth. And I felt good. And I, I just, you know, I was a couple of years into my recovery and I went to see a psychiatrist and I sat down with him. I thought, fuck it, I'm going to just tell this guy the truth. Like, and I, cause I had to find a psychiatrist to monitor the medication. So I had to sit down with this little guy, um, German guy he was. And I just, and he said, tell me what's going on and stuff. And I said, well, I thought I was Jesus. I thought I was the devil. I thought, and and he's laughing along with me. And he so we're just, and he's telling me stories about similar stuff and mm. we're just shooting the shit. And he said, you know what? I would question the diagnosis and I would say that you are more borderline personality that's been affected by shame and guilt and resentment and religion and divorce. Like mm. the factors, the trauma factors. And so that opened up the possibility to come off the medication so I, I, I brought my mum in and I said, if you find me walking naked in the street, this is the guy to speak to, mum, and <laughs> help me. And when you say borderline, you mean borderline personality disorder? Borderline personality okay. disorder, yeah. Okay. So I was like, well, for whatever. It wasn't quite what I was looking for. But fuck it. I'll take whatever I can get at the minute. Yeah. Um, so we came down off the medication for about over about eight months. I came off all the medication, didn't feel any different, didn't have any side effects, came off it started to feel, you know, okay. And, you know, that was that eight years ago. So I'm completely clean of all medication. So the recovery work mixed with sort of... Mm. So it and is... I wouldn't, can I just chip in? Oh, yeah, Sorry yeah. To I don't, and I wouldn't ever say to anybody, throw your medication away. That's not what I'm saying. If anybody's sort of listening and they're like, yes. well, hey, fuck it. I'm going to, maybe I'm going to... No, no. That's not, I did everything under the strict supervision of a psychiatrist. Thank you for saying that. And um, every moment was monitored, uh, we, always checking in. Um, so that was really important part of it. I felt good enough to do that. And don't get me wrong, I've, you know, I've gone through deep, deep sadness in, in the last 10 years, you know, and um, I've not had the depression though. I've not experienced that long periods of like, fuck. Not I'm getting out of it. Not getting out of it. Yeah. I've had thoughts that I've been like, this thought's never going to change and this is never going to look any different. Mm -hmm. But then it, it shifted, you know, so there's been like a, a grieving process, a refeeling process. Uh, um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you... Um you being diagnosed as having a borderline personality disorder from from my um having 
talked with people and read about it, it can be a really high maintenance personality disorder because the, there's impulsivity, there's fear of abandonment, there's exp- experiencing you know emotions that are twelve on a scare, scale of one to ten, um, and some people have found help through uh, dialectical behavior therapy because it helps them communicate um, and understand what it is that that they're feeling and how to express it. Is Has that been something that you have uh, looked into or has it just been such a kind of low-level version of it that it's manageable? I, You know, the feeling bit was the critical bit for me. Um I would say, even up to three or four years ago, if you'd have asked me how I felt, the best I could have offered you was numb. You know, I, I, yeah, I knew anger and rage, but I was so shut down emotionally. Like, I just, I, I remember my grandma dying, and I just remember having no, hmm. not, like, and I remember thinking, you callous bastard, cry. Yeah. To well, be honest, your, you, your you grandmother know? was a bore. <laughs> you knew it intimately. <laughs> oh, dear. So, you know, that, that level, the empathy, you know, and, and that sort of goes back to maybe the, the, the childhood stuff is that, you know, the disconnection with the head and the heart and the inability to feel. Like, if I can't, if I don't know me, I can't possibly empathize with somebody else. Right. So if I can't, feel my feeling if it's not safe to feel my feelings like the psychic numbing they talk about then how can i possibly connect with somebody else and it's taken me i've done emdr therapy which has been really helpful oh good um you know a lot lot of recovery work multiple 12-step programs and Mm -hmm. so forth that have you know men's groups really powerful stuff you know just really trying to get back in touch with this just trying to live a bit more from from the heart or whatever. So your book is called uh, Hunting Concrete Lions. Yes. Um, and uh, uh, Michael's last name is spelled C A N N A N, even though it's uh, pronounced Canon. Uh, dude, thank you so much for uh, coming and sharing such a fascinating story and and opening up. And uh, I know you were nervous before we sat down. Was yeah. it as terrifying as you thought it was no, going to be? No, it wasn't. Good. There's, when I see these microphones and stuff, there's, there's always that anxiety level rises, you know? Yeah, but uh, but I'm a jackass. Yeah, so I why know. be intimidated? And I, and I love it. Yeah. Uh, that's so great to see you, man. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks. Uh, so great uh, reconnecting with him. And uh, we'll put the links to uh, all of his stuff, including uh, the link to buy his book. We'll put that on the website. And speaking of websites, uh, I mentioned that this episode is uh, sponsored by Squarespace, who, by the way, have been a really great, consistent sponsor, not only of my podcast, but of podcasts in general. Um, and they've really, really helped the the, the podcasting uh, community by believing in it from the, from the get-go. But in addition to that, Squarespace is a great, great product. Uh, I use it. I love it. Um, if you have an idea that you want to turn into a website, whether you want to showcase some work or a blog or you want to sell products, any kind of products, check out Squarespace. They have beautiful templates uh, by world-class designers. It's really intuitive. It's, you know, drag and drop, 
super easy. I did my entire, uh, uh, website. I have a website of, uh, music I've done and, and, um, dog pictures I've taken. And I did the whole thing in about two hours. And, um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. There's nothing you ever need to install or patch or upgrade. If you have any questions, they have award-winning 24 seven, uh, customer service. And, uh, yeah, I can't, uh, recommend it highly enough because, if you have an idea, man, you want to present it as authentically and as professionally as possible. And Squarespace is the way to do it. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL. Uh, let's get to some surveys. This is from a, a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself E is for elephant and describing her depression. She writes, I try to logic my way out of my depressive episodes, but it's like my depression is William Jennings Bryan and the reason side of my mind is a semi brain damaged hamster. <laughs> Fan fucking tastic. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. I was at a support group meeting earlier tonight, and this guy was talking about the addict brain. He said, I have two corporations in my brain. One of them manufactures bullshit, and the other one buys it. It's like, oh, man, that is that is fucking brilliant. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Death is an Option. And she writes, I was having a major depressive episode. Great start, I know. It had gotten to the point where I had my pre-made noose tied under the ceiling light and sitting under it sobbing. During this time, I was on a phone call to a friend to try and calm down. I was a bit manic, so I didn't really notice that my friend hadn't said a thing. So I was going on a rant and punching walls and screaming. And mid-word, I hear my phone go, Outgoing voicemail message has been recorded and sent. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is from the sexual abuse or violation of a young male by older female. And this was filled out by, um, and that seemed to be the theme of uh, the surveys I went through for this for this week. Um this was filled out by a guy who calls himself Ward Wildcat, and he is, uh, hold is he? Hold on, let me find his birth certificate. Now, oh, you know what, maybe I'll just look, I'll look at the survey and see if it says it there. He's in his 50s, and he identifies as bisexual, and he writes, uh, when I was 13 or 14, um, uh, in the parentheses, eighth grade, I had a terrible crush on my band teacher, as did most of my friends. She was in her early 30s, very attractive, but married with two young children. There was a small group of us, four to five of the better musicians, all boys, who spent a lot of our free time, uh, lunch period, homeroom period, in her office, as she was very easygoing, seemed to enjoy our sense of humor, and allowed us to talk freely about girls, make dirty jokes, etc., one night, after a jazz band practice, she asked me to stay after. Not thinking anything of it, I did. After everyone else had left, she locked all the doors leading into the band room. She entered her office, closed the door, and stood in front of me, then asked, If you could do anything at all right now, what would you do? I knew I wanted to kiss her, but was frozen. 
After a pause, she grabbed my hand and pulled close to kiss me. We kissed in her office for maybe 15 minutes, then another 15 or so in her car in the parking lot outside the school before she drove me home. Over the next few months, we would kiss and touch each other whenever the opportunity allowed. She even had me babysit her kids a couple of times while she and her husband went out at night, then tell her husband she'd be stopping at the store after dropping me off at home, all the while she had shopped earlier in the day and left the bags in her trunk, and we would find a quiet, dark parking lot to kiss and touch each other. We never had intercourse. She did allow me to touch and suck on her breasts, and she once reached down inside my pants, which caused me to orgasm quite quickly. I don't remember what ended things, other than I know shortly thereafter she and her husband split and she began dating someone, uh, a single father who lived down the street from me, who she would later marry. And I wonder I wonder if uh, he had a son. Um, uh, if something happened, did you ever tell anyone? Did you think it was normal? Do you believe it has had any, any effect on you? Uh, he writes, at the time, I told only my best friend. He was one of the others who would hang out in her office. Uh, I didn't tell anyone else about it until I was an adult and was sure she had since moved away. I don't know if I thought it was, quote, normal at the time, but I do know I was aware she would get into a lot of trouble if we were ever found out. One day, my father pulled me aside, got right in my face, and asked what was going on with my teacher. I guess I'd been spending an awful lot of time staying after school in her office, staying late after practices, etc. I never confessed to anything, but did tell her about his suspicions. In hindsight, that may be why things ended. For most of my adult life, I lived with the idea that I thought I was actually lucky for having been able to fulfill, more or less, a fantasy most adolescents have. Um, uh, an affair with their teacher. Many years later, I was able to tell some of my friends who I've known since then, and they all acted like I was a hero for having made out with her. It's only been the last few years that I've been able to step back, see it for what it was. I was molested. And now I'm trying to figure out how much it has affected me. I have an unhealthy need to feel loved and wanted. It has affected my marriages. Once divorced, the second marriage now is not going so well either. It's affected my self-esteem also and my impulses and my desires. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? I still feel a bit of sexual excitement when I recall the particular instance, uh, instances things happened. And I remember feeling regret that she and I never were able to have intercourse. Yet, I know it was wrong and I'm angry if this is why I have had so much trouble in my relationships, particularly with my wife. Do you feel any damage was done? I feel, um, uh, do, do you feel any damage was done? It was innocent and natural or somewhere in between. I feel I was innocent and my feelings for her were natural, as I think many adolescent boys are attracted to women, but what she did was very wrong. Um... I do still fantasize about being with an older woman. I often seek out porn with older or mature women seducing younger men. I even enjoy watching role-play videos with teacher-student, aunt-nephew, or mom-son scenarios, although I've never actually fantasized in any way about my own mother. I don't see anything ever really happening. It's just more of a turn-on from time to time. Um... Yeah, and that's uh, that's basically the gist of of, of that. And um, 
if you've ever read the comment section um, when there is a story like this in the news, it's it's really um, disheartening because mostly it's male comments high-fiving the male who had the experience and very few women respond that way. Most of the women, when you look at the comments on a, on a, a website, when there's a story like this, um, see clearly that it's abuse and that that woman should be prosecuted. But um, we've got a long way to go, man. Got a long way to go. Uh, this is an awful moment filled out by the simple dog. And uh, he writes, Mr. Rogers was always my biggest hero growing up from the time I was a toddler all the way through to the present day. My parents fucked up a lot, but I have to credit them for this beautiful gift. My very first time in the psych ward in the adolescent unit, we had a classroom type group where they distributed newspapers to all of us patients. On the front page was the news of Mr. Rogers' death. (laughs) I fucking love when something is so shitty that it just morphs into laughter. This is a portion of a shame and secret survey I wanted to read. And this is filled out by a uh, an agender person who um, refers to themselves as just trying my best. And um, one of the things that they uh, describe is being anxious whenever they are around their parents um, to the point of nausea. And to the question, what are your deepest, darkest thoughts? They write, I feel horrible for this. It's completely fucked up and probably makes me a terrible person. But I sometimes think that maybe if I were dead, my parents might see what they were missing out on while I was alive and feel a little bit of remorse for how they treated me sometimes. I don't want to make them hurt, but I'm not sure they would be too upset that I was dead. I just want them to think about what they could have done to make me feel safer. It, it The situation that led to you feeling this way is what is completely fucked up. The feeling that you have is completely normal. It is a completely normal reaction to trauma, abandonment abuse. Um, And I just, if you're listening, I just want you to know that what you have described here, I read all the time in people who are raised in similar environments. They often have a fantasy of wanting something to happen to them uh, so that they can be in the hospital and be taken care of and get attention and so that their pain can be validated. That's so fucked up when when there's such little love in your home that you want to feel physical pain to alert somebody to for them to see you. You know, that's a really fucked up situation. But there is nothing other than you being a sensitive human being and in an insensitive environment. Um, darkest secrets. I stopped eating for longish 
or I stop eating for longish periods of time. My typical amount of time between meals is usually one to two days, but I've made it as long as four to five before. I don't think I would count it as an eating disorder because I've never lost any weight because of it, and nobody has ever noticed. Um, That has nothing to do with, with whether or not something is an eating disorder, and that is one of the biggest myths about it. It has nothing to do with weight. It more has to do with it being an unhealthy coping mechanism to deal with feelings, whether it's compulsive exercising or binging or purging or restricting or just obsessing about it. It's about replacing that with a healthy coping mechanism and and getting to the emotions that are underneath it. There must be so much pain underneath you being raised in in an environment like, like you are. You're 16. You're still being raised in it. And it just, it's heartbreaking. Um, they also write, uh, nobody has ever noticed I've tried to kill myself twice, only uh, actually did well enough to end up the, at the hospital once. I also keep kept injuring myself longer after I told people I had stopped. My parents think I stopped cutting shortly after my last suicide attempt. Little do they know that at my worst, I will often cut once or twice a day, always trying to find new ways to hide them so nobody would know. I really, really hope that you get the help that you deserve and the love that you deserve and that you get to experience being seen and validated and accepted for the authentic human being that you are. And it sucks that you were given, the parents that you were given, but the rest of the world is not like your parents. And I really wish that for you. But hang in there and find find someone you can open up to. Um, sending you some love. This is an awful moment filled out by Emily. And she writes, The afternoon after a particularly painful and totally unexpected breakup conversation with someone I was in love with, I was in my bed crying and feeling sorry for myself. I started to masturbate to help get some of my feelings out, which started out with me crying while remembering how good it felt emotionally when things were good between us, and ended with me climaxing while imagining someone calling me a dumb, worthless slut and no one would ever love me and I would die alone as I lay in my bed afterwards, tears streaming down my face. I suddenly thought, wow, that was fucked up enough that I should send it to the Mental Illness Happy Hour and Paul will probably read it on the podcast. And my day suddenly felt a little brighter. How's that for a silver lining? Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Oh my God. I, Of all the things I have experienced, I don't think I have ever experienced uh, crying while uh, while orgasming. That's. Uh, I'm not sure I would put that on my bucket list. Um, but... Uh, um, let's see. And this is another of the uh, previous survey that I'd read about the the boy um, and the teacher. And this was uh same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Lucky Question Mark. And he writes, I was 10 or 11 years old and my stepmom was in her 30s. She explained to me how wearing underwear was bad for your health and that I shouldn't wear any at night. 
It stunts your growth and you don't want to be small, she said. At first, she would check if I was wearing underwear when nobody was around. Once it was a habit, she would find ways to rub up against me at night, checking to see if there was any stirring down there. As I got older, she would ac- accidentally rest her hand on my member when we were watching movies together. Yeah, I would say that was not accidental. Uh, this continued until I was 14. That was when they got divorced for unrelated issues. Um, when I was 12, I asked my dad if it was normal for her to flirt with me, and he told me it was good practice for when I started dating. Holy fuck. I don't know if it had any effect on me, but I do have trouble with flirting as an adult. Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Sexual excitement. I like it when the woman makes the first sexual advancement. Do you feel any damage was done? Somewhere in between. I've got plenty of other issues that make me awkward when I interact with people. Um... Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, There is a website for males who have experienced uh, unwanted sexual contact at any point in their um, childhood or adolescence, and it's uh, oneinsix.org. That's the letter, the number one, and then I-N. And then the number six dot org. And that's because one in six is the number of males who have experienced unwanted sexual um, uh, experiences by the time they are 18. Uh, one in six males. And most people would be shocked to know that uh, over 40% of the perpetrators are female. Um, and it's also widely under underreported, uh, officially uh, underreported. So uh, most mental health professionals believe that that number is even higher, uh, closer to 50%. And, um, you know, that can't help but skew that person's view of the world, of relationships, of women, of their autonomy over... Um, their bodies, what, whatever it is, um, you know, the fact that a kid got a hard on when it happened has nothing to do with whether or not it damages that person or whether or not it's right. You know, a seven-year-old kid wants to drive a car. Should you let him? No, because it's not fucking safe. And then when the person gets to be, you know, thirty years old, they go, "How? Holy fuck!" Why did somebody let me drive a car when I was seven? Uh, This is an awful moment filled out by Mackenzie. And she writes, uh, There was a guy who moved to my school. Nobody really knew where he came from, but I found him extremely attractive. We started talking, casual flirting here and there. Then he asked me out. We played on a blanket in the field under the stars. It was straight out of a movie. He kissed me. It was the best kiss of my life. We laid there for a while, and then I told him about my adoption. He said he had a sister who was taken away when he was six and the sister was four. Turns out, he is my biological brother. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Um, this is 
a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman uh, who calls herself Not Poetic Poet. And she is in her 20s, identifies as bisexual, was raised in a totally chaotic environment. Um, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, I vaguely remember something happening with a babysitter when I was around 12. She was older than me. She would often kiss me and change in front of me purposefully. I usually disassociate or dissociate whenever there is sexual contact with people, and I don't know why. I don't realize it's happening until the person I am with pauses and asks me if I am okay. Uh, she's been physically abused and emotionally abused. Um, she was beaten by her stepdad. Um, um, my older sister moved her around a lot from family to family, and my younger sister was naive, so it was mostly me who bared the brunt of what was going on. Um, uh, when I was 13, I called the police and even thought I had to retract my statement. This forced the family to stop turning their heads. Uh, he was no longer allowed to hit us anymore, but that is when the emotional abuse started. He would often lie about me to my younger siblings uh, and say, don't dress like her. She dr she dresses like a, a prostitute, um, and on and on and on. Um, they divorced the year before I moved out for uni. Uh, for American listeners, that's university. But the damage was done. Also, when I was 12, we went back to my parents' home country, Somalia, where I was subjected to female genital mutilation. I still don't know how I am supposed to process this. I, I can't, cannot imagine. I cannot imagine what. Not only what that was like to experience, but to live with the effects of that physically, emotionally, uh, mentally. Um, any positive experiences with people who've abused you? My mother, she is funny and kind, and when we don't live together, I love her, but I can't forget everything from before. She let me pursue the job I wanted, even though it wasn't a cultural expectation. Uh, she lets me go to different cities and countries when all of my friends' parents don't. She's really lenient with me regarding my choices, something unheard of in my culture with all the restrictions placed on women. She lets me be me. Um, you know, my thought is if somebody's letting you be yourself, then you're not really getting to be yourself because you should make, be making the decision. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be up to her, but I understand coming from a culture where that is the norm, it has to be really, really hard, especially for those of us who have trouble, um, standing up for ourselves. Uh, darkest thoughts. I know I'm attracted to women despite the fact that I am a Muslim and it goes against everything I believe in. One of the reasons I wanted to read your survey, other than the fact that it really moved me, um, is if, if you are listening um, and you didn't listen to the episode from last week uh, with Cece uh, Sheffield, um, listen to it because I read a survey in there about um, Islam and homosexuality. And it's a survey that was filled out by a woman uh, whose brother is an imam. And he talked about people's sexuality being nobody's business except the person 
whose sexuality it is. And that, that is his interpretation of Islam, which, um, he studies. And so I would, I would question the messenger. I don't know enough about the, uh, the Quran, uh, to weigh in on it, but, um, I would say that the idea that homosexuality is a sin, um, first of all, is just fucking plain wrong. Um, but I think any religion where there are a large number of people who believe that, I'd say seek out the people that don't believe that, the people that don't judge, the people that love unconditionally. Because that, to me, sounds like people who are a little more connected to their God and less interested in punishing and feeling superior. Um, Darkest secrets. My darkest secrets are that I have been with women and I think about them a lot of the time. I am ashamed of my hypersexuality as it stops me from having normal, healthy feelings about sex and love. Man, it would be so great if you just said fuck what everybody else thinks and just explored what felt good to you, assuming that you're not crossing anybody's boundaries, doing anything illegal, hurting anybody, um, meaning the person that you're being sexual with. Um, and if it upsets somebody, um, tell them, well, then don't have sex with somebody of your same sex. If that's your stance on homosexuality, then, yeah, then don't have homosexual sex. But butt the fuck out of my life. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to be in a submissive state with a woman. I want to be tied up. I also want to feel pain, whether that is through choking and hair pulling. This makes me feel ashamed. You have nothing to feel ashamed about. That is so common and so not a comment on anybody's character. Um, we don't get to choose what turns us on. We just get to choose how we express it. Uh, what have you been, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to say that when I was seven, I held a knife to my stomach and I was convinced I wanted to kill myself. When I was 20, I tried to kill myself and afterwards I called a taxi and got myself to the hospital. And after 13 years of thinking about suicide, 10 to 20 times a day, all the suicidal ideation stopped. I want to tell them how strong I was for me and that I am not ashamed of wanting to kill myself, but that I am only glad I fought that part of me. I can't say that to anyone because they will only think about the suicide. They won't see how much better I am. They won't see past the, quote, crazy. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think there are people that would be inspired by that. I think anything that is real that is somebody's experience is valid and that person can take it or leave it. But, um, that's just my two cents, which now because of inflation is three cents. What if anything you wish for? I wish virginity wasn't a concept that makes me feel racked with guilt. It has prevented me from being intimate with a man. You know, the, the, the thing that I just see going throughout this survey is that your body has never been yours through your life. 
and it's fucking time you took ownership of your body, your desires, your experiences, and let other people pout, yell, whatever the fuck they want to do, but you pursuing what is authentic in you is not going to kill anybody else. And it might even open their mind. But it doesn't matter what their reaction is. What matters is that you're okay exactly as you are and you don't need to change your sexuality or your turn-ons How do you feel after writing these things down? Um, It's hard to write down the things that clutter my mind. I feel tense yet soothed. Uh, Have you shared these things with others? I've shared some of it, but my anxiety makes me second-guess telling people. Also, after I tell someone who is hurting what happened to me and how I survived, they think I must be bulletproof. And sometimes I can be, but sometimes I'm not, and they think I have come so far, nothing can affect me anymore. But I can still feel pain, and I need them to understand that I still break down. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Even if you still need to work on yourself, take time and congratulate yourself for all that you have achieved. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. You would make a wonderful guest for the podcast. Um, We did an episode with uh, Johanna Germa. Uh, a while back and that was a that was a really really good episode and she talked about the cultural uh, pressure of coming from a uh, conservative um, African family Um, she's first generation and yeah there's a lot of a lot of baggage uh, she has had to sort through in claiming her authenticity and I can't imagine how, how difficult it must be. Um, and finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Sophie. And uh, she writes, uh, I promise this is a happy moment. It just takes some buildup and background info to get there. Uh, she writes, I grew up in the area that Wikipedia calls the Bible Belt of West Michigan. And during my adolescence, I was your stereotypical good church girl. My life revolved around youth group, church every Sunday, ministry, trips, you name it. While growing up like this uh, is something I cherish, and while religion is still something that is important to me, it also means that it wasn't until I graduated from college, to make this even more of a cliche, it was a private conservative Christian school, and I moved across the country at 22 years old that I was able to fully acknowledge that I was 100% gay, a full-on lesbian. While I was never taught that it was necessarily, quote, wrong to be gay, it was heavily implied that you can either be gay or you can live a full religious life, but you can't be both. As you can imagine, this caused a lot of cognitive dissonance for me. Both of those communities are so important to me, and I can't imagine ever leaving one of them behind and the world was telling me that I had to choose, question mark. On top of all my other mental illness stressors, all of which revolve around self-doubt, I had to deal with this too, and it felt so unfair. 
The next several months were spent with debilitating anxiety to the point where I couldn't speak one-on-one with anyone without getting overwhelmed, and I was literally getting sick to my stomach every single weekend as my thoughts spiraled thinking about all the horrible possible outcomes that coming out could bring. A few more months passed, and in August 2017, I came out publicly via a wordy and emotional Facebook post while in an airport after a summer trip to Michigan so that I could have the excuse of, quote, airplane mode, not to check my phone for several hours. When I finally did, I was blown away by the response. And sometimes I want to turn back time to that moment just so I can feel the amount of love and support that I received right then even from some people from church and college that I never would have expected to send me their support. I spent the whole weekend crying, and I have never felt as loved as I did then. I often have a hard time remembering that there are people that love me and people that don't see me as a burden. But that moment reminds me that all these doubts I have don't have as much truth as I think they do. Also, you may be happy to hear that the anxiety sickness stopped immediately after this, which is a sign if I've ever seen one. After coming out, the cognitive dissonance was definitely still present, and I've been working hard to ease it away. I've been reading a lot of books and articles about religion and sexuality and why and how they can exist together. It's still a work in progress, but at least with regard to this conflict, my heart and mind are definitely in a better place than they were a year ago. That's so beautiful. And it's so funny. I did not intentionally put this survey after that one. Um, it's, man, that's, um, that's just so cool. That's so fucking cool. And I think small towns that are homophobic, everyone should get a gay bar that's called Cognitive Dissonance. And that's how people come out. Man, your guys' surveys just kick ass every week, and I appreciate it. Well, thank you for um, all the input you guys do to make this uh, show what it is whether you're my guest or you fill out a survey or you send me an email um, or you donate to the show or whatever it is. I I really, really appreciate it. And um, if you're out there and you're struggling, please ask for help. It's never as scary as you think it is. It's usually just the opposite. And while it may take a couple of tries to find the help that really clicks, it's worth it and you're worth it. And um, never forget that you are not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.